This is Diedrich Jonk, the new and actually old producer of the No Barriers podcast. I launched this podcast exactly 130 episodes or three seasons ago. After season two wrapped, I took on some other projects, but now as we approach season four, I'm happy to say I'm back in the saddle again, working with the hosts Eric, Dave, Jeff, and the rest of our fantastic production crew. So check it out. It's mid-November and 2021 is rapidly coming to a close. The end of the year is a time to reflect, but it's also time to give the hardworking staff of this podcast a little break. So with that in mind, I want to share an episode from season two with you. It's a staff favorite. The question is this, if you had the option of knowing the day you would die and how it would happen, what would you want to know? The guest in this episode found himself in just that position. His name is Jim Kwok. He accepted his fate and made it his mission to squeeze as much life out of the short time he had left. And along with that, committed himself to encouraging people just to wake the hell up and value this one precious life that we each have. Jim, sadly, is no longer with us. I, I can't believe how lucky a life I've had. I've been surrounded by an amazing family, friends, I've seen some of the best parts of humanity the last three years, and they give me a really strong sense of peace. And that peace, I think, makes me feel really powerful and not fearful about what lays ahead. It's easy to talk about the successes, but what doesn't get talked about enough is the struggle. My name is Eric Weinmayer. I've gotten the chance to ascend Mount Everest, to climb the tallest mountain in every continent, to kayak the Grand Canyon, and I happen to be blind. It's been a struggle to live what I call a no barriers life, to define it, to push the parameters of what it means. And part of the equation is diving into the learning process and trying to illuminate the universal elements that exist along the way. In that unexplored terrain, between those dark places we find ourselves in and the summit, exists a map. That map, that way forward, is what we call no barriers. Welcome to another installment of our No Barriers Alchemy podcast series, where we explore this extraordinary moment in our lives. Special thanks to Wells Fargo and Prudential for their generous support of the series. What does it mean to live a good life? Jim Kwok has been reflecting on this simple but important question since his colorectal cancer diagnosis three years ago. And after 41 rounds of chemotherapy, surgeries, and 28 rounds of radiation, Jim is stage four and is told it's non-curable. He ceased all treatment one and a half months ago and now focuses all of his energy on making the most of his remaining time. He's had a largely successful career and is still actively working as managing director at J.P. Morgan. He lives with his loving wife of 28 years, spends time with his two children, and remains active in his local running and tennis community. Jim now says, I am determined to live out my time a certain way, resolute that cancer doesn't get more than its fair share. Y'all are going to enjoy this one. Thank you, Jim, for joining us. I went to school with you at Hong Kong International School. Believe it or not, my dad was working for Pfizer Pharmaceuticals and he was over in Hong Kong and you were just like a tiny bit older than me. And I, I was in the class with your brother and um, he reintroduced us. Uh, I wanted to interview you on the podcast because you've been sending me these beautiful messages that you've been sending out to friends about your cancer situation. And um, I thought they were just really profound and you have a great perspective on, on life and you can help our audience in so many ways because people are kind of struggling to figure out what a good life means. So I'm really excited to spend some time with you this morning. Thanks for joining us. Well, I'm, uh, I'm really happy and uh, happy to be with you today and thank you for having me. Mm. Yeah. And so Earlier, we were talking about your morning routine. Tell us, just tell us that. I've become an early riser. I love the quiet of the morning. I love hearing the birds. 
Um, and I love just having my coffee and just sitting there and looking out the window and, you know, drinking my coffee, reflecting um, a lot, doing a little bit of reading. Sometimes I do some of my writing at that time as well. And it's usually when my body feels about as good as it's going to feel for the day. Well, you need to you need to give us continue to paint this picture for us, I think, just a little bit, if you could. So, you know, that there was this overlap in Hong Kong with you and Eric. Uh, and then you started this career path that had a pretty, I think, meteoric uh, trajectory. You you were a big dog for a long time, rising pretty high in the financial industry. Can you kind of get us up to that point before before we get to the, the crescendo and sort of build up that that background of your career with your family as well? So I grew up in Hong Kong. Uh, we grew up in Hong Kong. You know, I lived there. I was born in the States, but we moved there when I was less than two years old. So I don't remember the first part of my life in the States. I remember it from Hong Kong. And I was there from two years old till 10th grade. And um, it was just a magical time to live in Hong Kong uh, then, you know, and I lived it as a, an American expat family. So we were a close knit community living with lots of other American families. And we were all on this great adventure. You know, I really got a kick out of reading Eric's autobiography and some of the adventures uh, his dad took him on, which were even way more adventurous than most of ours. And it was just a great time. And it was a very close knit community. And, um, we had, a, we had a terrific time. We moved back to the States when I was in 10th grade. Uh, so I finished high school in the middle of the country in Michigan. And then I went, ended up at Northwestern University and studied economics and then started my career in finance for 10 years uh, at Goldman Sachs in their money management area. And then for the last 23 years, I've worked at JP Morgan in their money management area. And I oversee a small group of people that manage money for institutional clients. Uh, because they're institutional, the number sounds kind of crazy. And I've gotten so used to it, you kind of forget. But we oversee the group I'm in charge of oversees about $100 billion of client assets. And we just focus on working with um, uh, clients who are, uh, you know, they're just terrific people. And, and, you know, and that's what we do. And that's what I've been sort of preoccupied between family life and work life for the last 20 something years. Um, and I know we'll get to it until, until uh, life derailed my, uh, my path a little bit, but that's what life was like up until that point. And it was, you know, a nice progression. And I really enjoyed the, uh, I enjoyed the challenges of work and uh, the challenges of, uh, yeah, everything that that brought. Hong Kong was so exciting, right? Like it had this vibrance to it. And uh, it was an incredible tight community. It was pretty wild back in the 70s, too. Like uh, my brother graduated from HKS, Hong Kong International School. And uh, he would go down to this place called The Shack and they would drink beer after high school, after getting out of class. It was a uh, kind of a wild place. Then you go back to Michigan, big contrast, huh? Oh, it was shocking. You know, it, it was really shocking. Uh, yeah, we're living in a big city. Think back to what we were all like in 10th grade, you know. I'd say earlier than 10th grade, you wanted a lot of things that just kids wanted to do. You know, you wanted space, you wanted to get out and throw a ball, you wanted to ride your bike. And then around ninth, 10th grade, there's a whole nother life that exposes itself. And, you know, it's kind of exciting. You become a young adult. You want to go into the shack and drink some beer in the afternoon. <laughs> and, uh, and, you know, there are places like that, that you can do that in Hong Kong. And so to go from that and being in a really big city uh, and very international and moving to a town of 25, 30,000 people in the middle of Michigan uh, was a huge contrast. So culturally, that was a contrast. I had to deal with being a minority for the first time in my life. I'm an Asian American and uh, uh, having to encounter racism for the first time. I won't say a lot, but all of a sudden, like, you're calling me that, you know, and we're going to get in a fight. Know, you didn't even know that existed, right? Like prior to that in Hong Kong. I, I, maybe yeah, peripherally way out there. 
Jeff, I really didn't, you know, I really didn't, you know, as a kid, I didn't really know it. We grew up kind of sheltered, but I'm living in, in Hong Kong where even though I'm an American, I look like a, I'm a Chinese. So I look like I'm part of the majority. So your life had a dramatic change because you were diagnosed with cancer and you, you, you went through a, a lot of chemo trying to heal. Tell us about that journey when it started. Yeah. Um, I'm just going to rewind a little bit leading up into the journey so you can kind of almost see how, how out of the blue it came. My kids had just finished uh, high school and graduated and they were off to college. We were empty nesters. And my wife and I were saying, we miss them a lot, but this is an unbelievable opportunity to go see the world. So we had literally just saddled up our horses and we were starting to travel. In the beginning of 2017, my wife budged in and forced her way on a business trip I had. I don't do a lot of international travel, but she came with me to, to Dubai and, you know, a place, uh, an area of the world we'd never gone. That was that was awesome. Uh, in February of 2017, we took um, a backroads bike trip through Vietnam and Cambodia, and it was just an amazing way to see uh, so many things we had never seen and take in a culture. And I told my wife, "This is how I want to see the, the whole world," you know. And backroads is going to bring me into that. That's February of 2017. You know, uh, if anyone knows back roads, you know, it's a fairly active trip. We weren't super strenuous, but we biked about 200 miles over a week through Vietnam and Cambodia. And then all of a sudden, I just didn't feel particularly right. I was also 52 years old and, you know, past the age when you should get your routine colonoscopy. You know, my wife was uh, really bugging me, you know, to get the doctor's appointment and go in and get checked out. And I was thinking, maybe I have a bug. You know, it's not a big deal. What, how were you feeling? Just tired or like ill or in what way? What you know, way? you know, I had um, I had sort of irregularity with going to the to the bathroom. And I just I just all of a sudden had to go a lot more frequently. There was nothing, though, Jeff, in it that suggested something is seriously wrong with me. I thought maybe I picked up a bug while we were in Southeast Asia. That's it. And so uh, she was relentless and frankly, such a pain in the ass about call the doctor. I'll call tomorrow. And, you know, the interesting thing is I have a fear of doctors. I have a fear of anything they'll do to me and going to the doctor. So I was looking for every reason to procrastinate. And, and I will say this, right? Everything anyone probably knows about a colonoscopy who hasn't had one, I can think of 10,000 things I'd rather have them do to me than do that, right? I will, I will do almost anything before you're going to do that to me. So, you know, I really was dragging my feet. Anyways, fast forward, I go in and I've got all the sophomoric and juvenile jokes with my friends that I'm texting as I'm going in, right, to, um, into my colonoscopy. I have it. It was really no big deal. And I wake up and I'm in the recovery room and my wife has joined me in the recovery room. And then at that moment, it just became the most surreal thing. Like I'm in a conversation that was just like out of the movies, you know, where the doctor said, I'm sorry to tell you, we've discovered a very large tumor in your colon. And, uh, you know, and your mind is just reeling because, I'm not that guy. I'm not that guy. That doesn't happen to me. And, you know, they discovered it and they said they're going to do some biopsies and some testing. And, and I said, okay, so you'll confirm and you'll let me know, you know, if it's cancer. And she said, look, it's a really large tumor. We're going to do some biopsies just to know a little bit more, but I don't need to know anything more than to say you have a pretty advanced stage of cancer, which we had learned at the time was stage three. And then all of a sudden, it's just the whirlwind of doctor's appointments that, you know, thankfully, the doctor starts, send, you know, sending you, you're going to go see an oncologist, a surgeon, and blah, blah, blah. And you just are on a conveyor belt and kind of going through it. And, you know, for about 12 hours, my mind was, my mind was reeling. And it wasn't a lot longer than 12 hours, which was kind of interesting. But for 12 hours, I kept thinking, but how? But Why? And how did I get here? This isn't me. And um, 
The probably surprising thing is it just wasn't longer than that. Did it, did it almost feel like that introductory phase was denial, like we all sort of hear about, like when you go through a pretty traumatic experience like that, you went through, it sounds like several days of, wait, what? What? I, yeah. I, is that, and then, and then what happened right after that? Like when was the transition from denial to acceptance and then take us further through that process? Yeah. Yeah. Jeff, it was about 12 hours really. Right. And I woke up and I started calling some friends and telling them. And as I, the next day, started telling some close friends what, it, what I just learned, it was sort of crystallizing in my mind. And probably one of the first things I said, you know, that sort of crystallized is, um, I, don't, I don't know. I don't know. There's a lot of stuff I don't know. I'm not going to go on Google and try to be, you know, be a doctor. There's a reason all these doctors go to medical school for a long time. And I'm not going to try to become a doctor in 24 hours. I didn't go on Google. I've never been on Google to learn more about what's going on with me. It just wasn't the way I was going to do it. But one of the realizations I came to uh, 12 hours later was, I don't know what this is all about. I don't know what this is all about. But for me, I remember sobbing and just thinking about what it would do to my wife and my kids. That was the overwhelming sensation, just sobbing and it was all about them. I wasn't scared. Um, and then I really quickly got this picture, which is none of us are in control about, and it stayed with me the whole time. We're not in control. We're all going to go. We don't know when we're going to die. And maybe this is it for me. And it's not about how long it is or how much you get. It's not the quantity. It's the quality. Yeah. yeah. And that, that stayed with me one day after I got diagnosed and has stayed with me to this day. But you're also, um, you know, from your business background, I mean, I imagine that you're a pretty decisive, take charge kind of person. So you probably also kicked into gear in terms of, okay, I'm going to attack this thing. I'm going to do everything I need to do to take care of my health, right? I'm going to like do all the right stuff, right? So I imagine that take charge mentality jumps right in as well. Yeah. You know, Eric, that's, that's interesting. You say that I, I, I haven't really ever thought about that until I, I just heard you say that, but I think that is how I think about work, right? You get a set of facts and those are the facts, right? And once you have those facts, then you say, okay, if those are the facts, then what do you do with them? You don't say, give me some new facts. You have to make a set of decisions around the facts that you're given. And those were the facts I was, I were given. And, uh, you know, it was a tough hand, but um, I've, I've always thought um, like in life, in recent life, the last three years and in work, um, you know, you just got to be realistic. So if, if those are the cards, then how do I think about that? And what do I decide? So I think I was fairly decisive. Yeah. And then you think you beat this thing too. And then, right. So you, what, you went through chemo in the beginning as well, right? Yeah. yeah. So um you know, all the doctors, and this helped me a lot, especially when I thought about how I was going to tell my kids, all the doctors were telling me, you're curable. We're going to, we're going to bring you to hell and we're going to do a lot of things to you, which was three surgeries, six or more rounds of chemotherapy, 28 rounds of radiation, but you're going to end up living a full and normal life. And, you know, if I fast forward that, right, it helped a lot because in that first two weeks, as we learned that and every doctor was telling me, we're, you're going to, you're, you're curable. We're going to get you through there. I did go through a period of time where I thought in the very beginning of, I'm not sure if I can do it, but um, let me just fast forward for a second. And when it came to telling my kids, that was a huge thing. My son was just going into finals when I learned I had cancer, finals at his freshman year. And I didn't want to tell him, right? Not like right as he's going into finals. So that two weeks as I learned, I was curable and he came home and I told him and it just helped a great deal. And I always thought, get it, get bad news, get it out fast, peel the bandaid off. And it helped a great deal. And my two sentences were, I have cancer, but all the doctors say I'm going to be okay. Right. And I think those are just two important facts. And then, and then I'll fill you in on the details. And then so at that point, once you think you may be cured, you have like what monthly checkups 
to keep going to the doctor and then it came back, right? Yeah. We had uh, check-ins of various type, you know, for uh, probably like every other month um, and where they're just monitoring you. And, you know, I think, I think I did a really good job because I heard, I heard some people feel like, uh, and I read something that was just all wrong to me. And, you know, that sounds probably a little judgmental. It wasn't right for me. I can't judge that about someone else, but I read it uh, in some magazine where someone said they had their tests for recurrence and they were clean and I got 90 days to live, 90 more days to live till the next test. Right. And I thought, I'm, I'm not going to, I'm not going to be a hostage to these tests. Mm. I know cancer can come back and take me anytime. And I'm not going to sit around and wonder, is it coming back? Is it here? I'm just going to forget about these tests. I know it can come back. I know that's why cancer is so dangerous because it's so persistent. But I, I'm just not going to be held hostage and sit around wondering and being scared of the fact of whether it's going to come back. I got a life to live. How successful were you at that? I know that that's an ideology, but did was it? I know it's probably hard, but did you do it? Did, were yeah. you able to fully do that? Jeff, you know, there was nothing. If you knew me before I had cancer, you, I became a really different guy, right? It was actually pretty easy. It was pretty easy. Now, I'll tell you about a day or two before I'd go in for a test, it starts getting in your head, right? And I just try to keep everything around me real calm and real quiet, really look out at the, at the morning sun and just looking at how beautiful things are, would not really get in my head. You go in and you get a scan and then now they've got, you know, images of you and you know, when you come home, there's a paper, there's a report that says, you know, didn't your cancer come back or not? And, you know, and you know, it's out there, but yet about 24 hours, 24, 48 hours before the doctor tells you what that piece of paper says and what the scan showed, then it gets a little tricky to not be a little anxious about. So, you know, what's the deal? What's happening? And even then, I think I did a pretty good job of not, there were no sleepless nights. I don't know. Somehow I managed just to sort of push it out of my mind. And then how many clean scans did you get between the initial remission and then the, the, the next recurrence? Yeah. You know, unfortunately, I lived this uh, really all too short period of time. In December of 2017, at the end of December, I diagnosed in May of 2017. In December was the last and final step where they um, did a major surgery on me, cut a foot and a half of my colon out, did biopsy. And, and they all, all the doctors said, at that moment, that's going to be your moment of truth. That's when we're really going to know whether we got the cancer or not. So December of 2017... You know, the doctors told me we got it. We got all the cancer out. And it was from that point on in my mind, I thought I was cancer free. And it was uh, in the very beginning of July. So six months later is when my cancer came back. And uh, that's what was a little bit alarming that it came back that quickly and it spread uh, that quickly was pretty concerning to the doctors. What was your gamut of emotions at that point coming back, you know? Uh, I mean, I remember the morning really well. I was dressing for work and oh, my doctor had said uh, in one of these routine tests and they were all saying, get out of here. We'll see you in three months or two months for our next test. And, you know, we're smiling and high fiving. Yeah. yeah, I'm back and I'm living my life. And I, 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 I went through you know, hell's basement to get to get my life back. And, you know, that's where we were. We took a blood test. My doctor called me and said, um, hey, I saw something I don't like. It's probably nothing. Just come on in and uh, we want you to come in and get a scan, which you're not due for for four or five more months, but I want to get a closer look at that. I said, great. You want me in in a week or two? And she goes, I want you to come in tomorrow. So that was a little concerning. I went in the next day. And then it was Monday, it was a Monday and I was dressing for work when my doctor called me with the results. And uh, I just dressed and I was getting ready to go. And she said, I'm really sorry to tell you your cancer has come back. 
and it's spread to your liver, spread to your lymph nodes, and uh, you're not stage three anymore. You're now stage four. You're not curable. And we're going to need to start doing some things to you right away. We need to get you on uh, chemotherapy because it's a little alarming how quickly it came back. I sat down in this very room I'm talking to you from now. I cried. I couldn't believe, I couldn't believe this happened to me because I paid one hell of a price to get my life back. Uh, my family paid a hell of a price to see, you know, for us all to go through that. I cried for 10 minutes and my kids are sleeping at the end of the hall. And they just, I just couldn't let them see me like that. <clears throat> so after about 10 minutes, I grabbed my wife and I said, let's go for a walk. You know, in Chicago, we live not too far from the beach. We drove over to the beach. We walked along the beach. It was just so beautiful. And I just said, just look, look at, look at this. Look at just how great life is. And let's look at how beautiful it is. And uh, just restored everything about like, no matter how long or short this is, I'm just, I just can't believe how lucky I am to be alive. And even with this news, and uh, we're going to tell the kids a lot of it, maybe I would have handled it differently if I didn't have children, but I just couldn't have my children see me falling apart and at, no, at a complete loss of emotional control. And so, um, you know, we had to figure out how to face the kids because they were going to wake up in an hour. And I had to, we had to tell them because I wasn't going to go to work that day. In fact, I was going to now be going into the hospital every day for appointment after appointment. And uh, there's no way you could keep that from them. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So you sat the kids down and talked to them about that. Yeah. Yeah. <clears throat> they were, uh, you know, shocked, blown away. We were, we were, you know, we were celebrating because I, I got my life back. And, you know, we were going out and, you know, when you get a second lease on life, Man, you know, it was it was it was pretty cool. Every day was pretty amazing. And so, yeah, it was it was uh, I think I think out of all of us, the air just left us, you know, and it's just like you got gut punched. When you reflect back on this process, I can't help but think about those six months. Yeah. And your mindset during that six months. And you told us, like, you know, you celebrated your it was a lot of high fives. It was a lot of really pure, raw, beautiful emotion about this this second opportunity with your kids and your and, and your wife. And, and uh, I wonder, do you reflect on those six months frequently when you reflect or do you or is it all kind of packaged together in this journey? Like, is that a, a, a beautiful flower that's kind of in the middle of all the thorns? How do you, or do you, or does it just kind of blend in with everything else? It's funny, Jeff. On December 3rd or December 7th, it's a day that sticks with me because that's the day I had my surgery. And that's the day they told me I was cancer free. And it's the only day where I kind of go, damn it. You know, how did I get, how did I get there? Right. How did I go from cancer free to that? It's the only day that I really get stuck on that. And so I don't go back to, you know, how, do, how, how come I was clean, free of cancer, and you know that was amazing. I, I, I have I have learned uh, just to be totally in the moment, and um, I can't go back in time. I can't change anything. I can't change what's going on in my body. So I haven't really thought back on how great those six months of cancer free were. I've really just mostly thought about well, where am I, where am I at today? And what do I want to do with today and dealt with the reality of what I have today. So have not really spent a lot of time thinking about those six months. You also, Jim, I mean, you've talked um, and you sent me posts. Uh, they're really beautiful. They're very powerful. They're very insightful. And you talked one time about getting the CT scan and how that injects contrast into your bloodstream so they can see things. But sort of cancer has created a contrast. Like talk about that clarity because I think that's fascinating. I view cancer has, has really been a gift in my life. And that sounds so crazy. And I wouldn't wish this around, uh, on anybody. But the last three years, that the contrast that I've had has allowed me to see just so clearly and vividly 
there's three things that kind of matter to me in, in life. The first is my friends and family. I just see very clearly the people in my life that really count. And, you know, sadly, there's a set of people that don't matter as much, but I just so clearly see the people in my life that matter a great deal to me. And then there's a set of things that matter to me in life, including my work. It matters a great deal to me. And it's, um, it's the fulfillment of my human potential. It's my canvas. You guys climb, which I think is just awesome. I don't climb, but, you know, in work, I'm testing my potential to see, you know, can I do things that I didn't think I could do? And that's my canvas. And then the third thing was, um, you know, as I've been on this journey for the last three years, just seeing how powerful positive humanity can be. And I want to be a better human. And so, you know, cancer really taught me that. I wasn't that guy. I never thought about those things. But the last three years, having this darkness all around you allows you to see the brightness. And those things came into a really, really sharp focus. And I would say pervade my thinking all the time. And that's what matters to me. I wouldn't be this guy were it not for cancer. And if you said to me, this will sound a little crazy, but live a full life live till you're 80, 90 years old, but not know these things as strongly as I do, or you're going to live three years and you're going to die of cancer, but know these things so clearly and so vividly and powerfully, I take the trade and live a shorter, higher quality life than to live a long life and kind of be less clued in. Mm, Yeah. I I also feel... And again, just my observation that you have a lot of energy, even though your body is getting beat down, there's something else in you that continues to have energy. And what's the source of that energy, Jim? I think it's two, I think it's really two things, Eric. Life is just such an amazing gift. And I hope everyone who's listening to this just appreciates that, you know, life is such a gift for all of us. And And it's a privilege. And, you know, we just owe it to ourselves to give it the best ride that we can. There's an energy that derives from that, right? I want to be better. I want to be better. Uh, I want to be a better father. I want to be a better husband. I want to be a better human. And there's an energy that pulsates through that when you have a sense of urgency around that. The other part of uh, where my energy comes from is, you know, a sense of peace. I, I can't believe how lucky a life I've had. I've been surrounded by an amazing family, friends. I've seen some of the best parts of humanity the last three years, and they give me a really strong sense of peace. And that peace, I think, makes me feel really powerful and not fearful about what lays ahead. I want to ask you, uh, it's a little bit of a dovetail, but it's, it's about this sort of, uh, I guess, acceptance of death and how I think generally the human condition creates a fear that surrounds it. And I think most people would say, I'm afraid to die. There's a lot of therapy modalities that are used and some are gaining more traction than others um, in the past decade or so. uh, And they deal with the, uh, the extraction of the ego Um, because the ego is really the thing that is protecting you from death and doesn't want you to die. And it sounds like these dreams that you've had, Jim, have honestly been your sort of the, your, your ego, your, your consciousness saying to you, it's, it's okay. Like, don't, let's not be fearful of this. Let's, let's, let's allow this to, to happen. And, and it's almost like you went through the therapy on your own and your, your, your consciousness is pushing you there and stripping you away that, that ego that's trying to hold you to the planet. Does that, does any of that resonate with you or do you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I, I really, I really think that's, that's right. And Jeff, I don't, I don't, I'm not particularly uh, spiritual. I don't know that I believe, you know, I don't know what I believe about whether there's an afterlife. There are some days I think, who knows? Maybe there is something on the other side. There are other days where I think the lights just go off when it's my time. I think if you think about what is going to scare you, uh, what could cause you to have fear, 
I think the first thing is we'd fear, and I think we'd be, it'd be very natural for us to fear a painful death, right? And as I've talked to uh, some of my hospice doctors, and I've asked them about that, they said it won't be painful, you know? You got to work with us, but we can take care of the pain. So we're fortunate enough to live in a time when, you know, there's medicine that can take care of it. And, you know, pain has become a little bit more of an issue uh, for me in the last few months. And sure enough, they've been helping me take care of the pain. It's unpleasant at times, but I know that we can get our arms around it. So I feel confident in knowing I'm not going to have a painful death. That takes a big part of it off, right? There is something also about knowing that we're just all going to die. We're all going to die at some point. I just happen to know way more about it than 90% of the people that are out there. I know kind of roughly how, when it will happen, how it will happen, what I might feel like. And look, none of it is pleasant. And I, I certainly don't look forward to any of it. But again, I understand There'll be things that they can do to help me with the physical part of it. So it just sort of leaves you with the spiritual part of it or the what what do you feel inside? And I feel surrounded by love and an amazing set of friends. And I just sit back and when I do reflect and think about life, I think about all of these great memories and things I've happened to, I, that I just can't believe I got to ride on that. You know, and if, if I told you all of the stories, they're really mundane. They're nothing particularly extraordinary. Right. The, yeah. They're just beautiful to me. You know, the first time I rode a bike, the first time I saw the Rockies, you know, the first time or the last time I was at the beach. To me, they're all just beautiful things. I got to do those things. Right. And to me, I'm just I, I just I just feel so at peace that I got to do all those things. And I don't have a sense of I need more. I just can't believe what I had. So I feel peaceful with where I'm at. Well, you, you talk about peace a lot in your posts and that seems to connect with the things that you can influence. Like I'll actually, as a blank, I'll try to read this. Uh, I am in control of the sense of peace I have. I am in control of a sense of having lived a blessed life. So there are things, even though, you know, things are, out of control in certain ways, right? You can't control certain things happening to your body. How do you maintain that sense of control or influence in your life? You know, I'm not in control of what's happening to my physical body. I'm not in control of what's happening with this um, molecular riot that's going on in my body. Just can't, I can't do anything about it. I am in control of my attitude, uh, my outlook, and, uh, you know, and that's what I'm in control of. And, and that's the only thing I'm in control of. And I've said this also, you know, cancer, if, if you let it and where cancer really wins is if it gets more than it should, it's going to get my body. If it gets my soul, my attitude, then it's getting more than it should. Right. If it gets and I've told this to my wife and my kids, you're going to you're going to be um, devastated when I die. You're going to fall down. You're going to cry, but you're going to get up. You are going to get up because if you stay down, then cancer is getting more than it should. I love it. Well, I, I, I know you said this phrase and I want you to, to tell, talk a little bit more about it. You know how, how there's this, um, this thing that we sort of nonchalantly throw it. I can live with that. Um, and you've, you've, you've sort of uh, paraphrased that a little bit. Can you tell us, tell us about what that means? I think the, the, whole, the whole wording of that is wrong. And a much better wording of that phrase, I can live with that, is I can die with that. And if you just really think about it, it catches some people off guard for a second. But this idea of I can die with that should just stop you and make you think, do you have the right priorities? Are you acting in a way that you would be proud of your conduct? Are you making decisions that will last beyond you that feel right? And when it comes time, when they tell you that's your time and you look back on it, are you going to feel okay about those decisions? So really, it's what you can die with because at that point, you can't go back. You can't do it again, right? So this idea, and again, I say um, cancer has brought me gifts like that and allowed me to think because I didn't think like that. You know, you just start thinking and doing, but 
I've really just tried to think. It doesn't mean I haven't made plenty of mistakes or seen things wrong, and I have plenty of shortcomings, but I just really try to think very carefully about that uh, in the last three years. And, you know, when it's my moment and when I draw my last breath, am I going to be okay with the decisions I've made? Right. And I, and I believe this. While I'm an imperfect person, I believe on the whole, I've tried to do the best I can and as right as I can. And um, when you find me at the end, I hope you'll find me with a smile on my face because I can't believe I got to live life. And you'll find me with a tear in my eye of how to leave my family. But I, I, I would just hope people would just think about that in the moment because just stop for a second and think about this. Can you die with the decision that you're making? Because it's part of you, it's part of your legacy, and it impacts people. And sometimes these decisions are bigger than others. And you should just really just pause and consider, you know, is that is that something that um, you can take to your grave and say, I'm, I did I did as right as I could. And like, how, what's your secret to trying to live in the moment? I think the biggest thing, Eric, is just trying not to be consumed and worrying about things I can't control. As Jeff, you were asking a while ago about scans. When I think about my last scan, uh, which was, uh, I don't know, a month ago or so, just had the headphones on, just drinking my coffee and just reflecting and just trying to not worry and think about, you know, the scan and things. And by not worrying about things that I don't control, just, you know, it just sort of leaves you with, then there's no room for really anger or frustration because I'm just not in any control of that, right? If you're, if you're, the only thing I think you really got to do is brace yourself. It's one hell of a thing, I'll tell you. And it takes a, a bit of energy, a lot of energy and a lot of focus to walk in uh, and get ready for a doctor to tell you you're going to die. It's just one hell of a thing. And I've done it too many times. And I think the the way to do that is all the things I've said, just to shore yourself up in a sense of peacefulness uh, about the life you've had and that it's a blessing. Uh, And right now, today, this is a gift. And at night, somehow, when I go to bed, it just happens. I don't, I'm not conscious about this at all. But when I go to bed, I find myself just thinking, well, that was a hell of a day. It was a great day, you know, and uh, I just think back on like, you know, what it was. This conversation is going to be like, that was a great day. June 1st was a great day. And that's what I look back on. And inevitably, I just look back and those are the things that just fill my mind, you know. Now, I'll tell you, before my eyes shut for tonight, I'm going to feel like crap at some point today. That's just the nature of dealing with advanced cancer, right? But that's just what it is. It sucks. I hate it. But somehow when I close my eyes, I'll just think about what are the great things that happened in my life today? And that's the moment I don't want to miss. Were there things that um, you've done now that maybe you would have been scared or maybe reluctant to do when you think, okay, I have 30, 40 years ahead of me? Like, I I just am trying to put myself there. Like, it seems like you might be quicker to hug people or are there certain things that you practice differently? I say what's on my mind more. Yeah, I'm I'm much quicker to uh, uh, and I still am not very good at this, but try to see the positive side of the person who's in front of me or I'm talking to. But, you know, I'd say in the past, I, you know, I think it's our I think it's a common thing to be like a little worried, like, should I say that? Is it okay? Will they take that the right way or the wrong way? I think this idea that everyone maybe could be helpful is, you know, act like you won't have a second chance, right? I may not talk to so-and-so again, and there's a certain set of things I want to say to them. This is the moment. This is now, and what am I waiting for? And I would say in the past, I would have been a lot more hesitant to express those kinds of things and do them. I haven't become like a daredevil. I haven't jumped out of an airplane, you know, uh, or anything. So it's not anything necessarily physical that I've become more brave about, but it's probably just the idea of expressing myself more. Would you have picked yourself as the person, say, let's back up five years ago, would Jim have been the person who would have had a terminal diagnosis 
and been a uh, had the courage to stand up in front of his colleagues on stage and tell his stories, get on podcasts, write, you know, pretty detailed, uh, involved posts and be almost, I, I would call you an advocate for life. Would you have pinned yourself as being that person? Or have you grown into that feeling like maybe it's like part of this journey that you're on, that this is your role now to, to, to showcase to people like, stand the hell up, man. Y'all are like this, everything you've been sharing with us, it's there. And, and I wonder, did, did it come from a place uh, where you really, do you feel obligated to do it or do you want to do it? Or where is it? Where does it sit in you? Uh, no, I wasn't that guy five years ago. I was a guy who had stage fright. I was a guy, you know, I remember at work or other events and they say, hey, we want you to get up there and say some things or, you know, do things for work. And, you know, they made me nervous. I didn't want to do things, uh, you know, being around certain people, you know, sometimes I'd get nervous. And, and so I think my cancer has changed things. You know, I did have a chance to address my colleagues earlier this year. I, the old me would have never done this, but I asked for that opportunity. I said, I've got something to say. I want you to put me up on the big stage at our conference of our colleagues gathering from around the world. Uh, and I want to share a perspective with them because I have something to say. And it's not really my ego that's leading me to want to do that, Jeff. You know, I was explaining this to somebody. I feel like, you know, uh, fortunately, I don't know anybody who's really had cancer. Uh, and among my friends, you know, and I feel like cancer was something that really only happened to people who are quite a bit older. You know, it was their natural end of life of living a long and full life. But to be, you know, relatively young, I'm in my mid 50s. Um, and for this to happen, you know, thankfully, I don't know any friends or any peers who really have been sick like this. I've started to become aware unfortunately, that cancer has gotten a hold of a, a way too many people. But I say this, I feel like my role is to, I'm a forward scout. For whatever reason, you know, I got sent down the river and I saw some things and I'm just coming back. And I feel, I feel like I want to share, like, here's what I saw. Right. And that message is in all the things I've been writing and is in some of the messaging I've been sharing here. And I feel like um, I feel a little duty bound to want to share it because I have been surrounded by some of the kindest and most compassionate people. And I, and I can't believe it's been my good fortune to be surrounded by people like that. So what do, what do you do to pay it back? Let me tell you some things that maybe, maybe it applies to you. Maybe it doesn't. Maybe you might want to think about this stuff. And again, I recognize it doesn't play for everyone, but if, if you could just think about this stuff and it makes you just think about like, what are you doing with your day today? What are you doing with your moment? What are you doing with your attitude? And if it just helps you a little bit and you don't have to have uh, the cancer battle, then that, that, is, that is a great thing. So I'm just a forward scout. What, what is your definition? And I know this is a big question, but so what is your definition of a good life for people to think about? <clears throat> Boy, that is a big question. Sorry. <laughs> yeah, no, that's great. That's great. Um, look, I, th I, think, I think first it's looking within yourself. Do you feel fulfilled? I think a good life is one where you give back maybe a little bit more than you took. We're, we're, we're each launched with a set of potential, right? And in many cases, because we're human, you know, we're not all going to be Michael Jordan right? We're going to have limitations. And sometimes those limitations are more significant. Eric, you know, you have a limitation, but what do we do with, even in spite of our limitations or non-limitations, how do we just try to test the potential of what we, you know, what we can do and, and, and to, to test the potential that we have? As I mentioned, for me, you know, that takes the, the shape of the relationships I have, but it also takes the shape of, you know, my work, you know, my work has long ago stopped being important for what many people think of their work, which is, uh, it's a paycheck, uh, or I'm, I want to be on a promotion path. I just think of it as a canvas to try to say, you know, 
am I thinking clearly and am I bringing some value to what I'm doing? And, you know, when I think about a life fulfilled, I would just say, did I give more than I took? Did I, did I realize my potential? Obviously you want to be, you want to be as good uh, a family man as you can with your, your wife and your kids. But I think even bigger than that, you know, were you a decent human and we all make mistakes? Did you just try to do the very best you can? And, you know, if I look back on that and I feel like I can check those boxes, then that's going to be a life fulfilled. Yeah. Yeah. And it seems like courage is a, a big part of it, too. Seems like courage is sort of like something weaving its way through all that stuff. Courage is a byproduct, I guess. You know, I haven't tried to think of myself to act courageously. I do think I have been courageous through this thing, but it's just been a byproduct of, you know, acting with a level of resolve. I have limited time. I have a purpose with what I want to do with my time. If people see that as courageous, then thank you. That's a really complimentary way to characterize it. But I'm just trying to do the best I can with the little time that I have left. And uh, I didn't seek start out this thing to be necessarily courageous. Um, And as I said, if you want to go for a two hour podcast, I can tell you all the things I'm, I'm afraid of uh, because it's a, it's a, it's a long list, but uh, when it comes to life, man, yeah, I'm just trying to do the best I can with it. I'm sure you know this, Jim, but I think a lot of people um, in your position turtle up and cower in the face of it. And um, you've done the opposite of that. I mean, I know, I know that if you peel back the curtain, there was obviously plenty of times for you when you felt vulnerable and fearful and scared. But um, I mean, I feel like what you're doing, you say this duty bound sort of forward scout approach, you have done something that is unique and powerful and your legacy is cemented forever. Um, because of the words and the stories and the feelings and emotions and advice that you have are, are continuing to share with people and you're you're a gift so it's an amazing journey that you're on and um, we're all better for hearing you tell it well i i appreciate that very much jeff thank you yeah i mean we're constantly at no barriers are trying to talk about these elements of life and one of them we call alch- alchemy you know this idea of when shit happens you know Do you turtle up, as you just said, Jeff, or do you think expansively? And so that's a big part of today for me is uh, thinking about how to think more expansively in in life. So thanks, Jim. Yeah, no, my my pleasure. We can only say, Jim, like, you know, I, I... I, uh, I I think about these these next you know these next weeks for you and and um, months hopefully um, with your family and sitting there I'm gonna I'm going to imagine you um, every morning um, you know I'm at the foot of I'm in the, in the very foothills of the Rockies I'm gonna think about you in the morning when I'm watching and listening to the birds and just taking taking in the the majesty of this place and I'm going to reflect on you. Uh, and where your head's at doing that same thing. So thank you for that gift. Appreciate it. I love that. And Jeff, you're going to return that gift because you're going to take a picture of that uh, one of these mornings of that view that you're looking at. Yeah. And I want you to send that to me. Done. <laughs> I'll do the same. I'll do the same. The view I'm looking at outside my window. I want to see a pretty good photographer, Eric. It, it, it's actually quite striking how good of a picture taker he is. Is that right? Yeah, okay. Yeah. It's, it's Eric, bring it. Except bring that it, sometimes it. I have my phone backwards and I just take a picture of like my <laughs> my nose. It's the wrong direction. That's all right. I want to see it. I want to see it. All right. I'll give you a close up picture of my nostrils. <laughs> thanks so much for your time jim uh jim, thank it, you the, the greatest commodity we all have is time and some of yeah. us appreciate it even more so and so thank you very much for all of it yeah no jeff it's uh it's my pleasure my pleasure to be here and like i said you know we're living in a tough time right now and um my hat's off to you guys because um you know thinking about positivity and positive energy and uh, the better side of our human spirit and how we treat each other is just so important. I'm just so inspired by the things that you are doing to carry that message out to so many people. And, you know, more than ever, this world needs to hear that and be inspired by the good we can do, 
the good we should do and how we lift ourselves up and, and live a better life as a result of that, because we can do a hell of a lot better than what we're doing right now at this moment. Agreed. No words have been spoken, man. I mean, I, it's a gift for us to be able to talk to people in an intellectual level and finding their way uh, through life. But um, I think your, your topic and your transparency is, uh, is unique in so many ways. So, yeah. What, what'd you take out of this, Jeff? <laughs> well, his lens and optic that he has is such a unique thing that, that all of us need to take heed of. There is no one who gets out of this alive, as has been written eloquently. We, we are all going to follow the same path. But in a way, from what you could tell from Jim's tone and the way he spoke about his, his path, he, he sees it as a gift in a way to know, you know, we've all been in those positions where it's like, well, if you could look into that crystal ball and you could say, like, this is the day I'm going to die. This is how I'm going to die. Would you choose it? And I think most people that we, we pose that question to would say, no, I don't want to know. Well, Jim didn't have a choice. Jim's like, here's the crystal ball. There's your, you know, there's your day, your month, you know, your period that you're going to go. And this is how you're going to go. And in knowing that it has provided him this tapestry to be able to paint and embrace and squeeze and hold and love and do all these things that, um, you know, like it, it encourages people like me to go up and just randomly go up to my kid and just squeeze him really tight. And he'll be like, dad, what are you doing? You know, but like do that do that. So that's one thing. And then the other, uh, the other thing that really stood out was, was Jim saying, you know, it's, it's not necessarily the quantity, it's the quality. I think I'm paraphrasing, but it was not how long, but just how strong really, uh, his, his days are. And I think that that's something that it's easy to just brush by, especially with all the negativity that's floating around right now. But don't forget that. Don't forget the power that comes with each day. And then, uh, the, sorry, one more thing. There's just so much. So give, give back more than you took. And that's the cornerstone of servant leadership, which is so important to me and, and being of service to people. And, and um, I wish people would consider what that looks like in their own lives on a micro and macro level. So Jim's a gift. Grateful to have had the time with him. So you're up. What do you, where's you, where do you, where do you land? Well, just how valuable this conversation has been for me personally, because, you know, like when we're doing this podcast, we're trying to dive into like really authentic people, you know, no BS. Like, what does a real life look like? What does a good life look like? Uh, you know, we don't want a motivational poster. I don't want this like perfect little neat ingredient to like the secret of life. Right. It's a, it's a super messy thing. And uh, so Jim didn't ask for cancer to happen in his life, but. You know, these things are like a catalyst that uh, create a kind of energy. Like he said, like in terms of the CT scan, it cr creates a kind of contrast in your life. And uh, so cancer could make you go either way. It could be this thing that just crushes your spirits and fills you full of fear. Um, dread could be like this weight that looms over you. Or like Jim, you can make it the catalyst to clarity, uh, to understanding certain things a little better to you know understanding the beautiful things in life how to live in the moment as he mentioned you know just so many quote-unquote gifts and part of that is seeking those things part of it is you know how you step up and and try to live your life as jim eloquently said you know the best you can every day uh, with the time you have so uh, i think this is the perfect messy message for our for our community. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And thank you to Jim. Thanks, Jeff. If people are interested in no barriers and want to attend our virtual summit, we're going to have thousands of people being a part of the summit, incredible speakers and innovators and workshop leaders, uh, sort of like the po the podcast here on steroids. And also thank you to Wells Fargo and Prudential for supporting the podcast you know these are great companies go out and support them because they support us at no barriers so thanks to all of them no barriers see you next time the production team behind this podcast includes senior producer pauline schaefer executive producer diedrich jonk sound design editing and mixing by tyler cotman graphics by sam davis 
and marketing support by Megan Lee and Carly Sandsmark. Special thanks to the Dan Ryan Band for our intro song, Guidance. And thanks to all of you for listening. We know that you've got a lot of choices about how you can spend your time, and we appreciate you spending it with us. If you enjoy this podcast, we encourage you to subscribe to it, share it, and give us a review. Show notes can be found at nobarrierspodcast.com. Bye.